Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. Today I'm here with Tanner Lindsley, who's the creator of the Tan Stack, which includes popular tools like React Query and React Table. And he's also VP of UI UX at Nozzle. How are you doing, Tanner? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well and excited to have you on. So maybe we can first start by jumping into the Tan Stack, which um, I'm guessing is named named after yourself. <laughs> um, and, and this is a you know a bunch of very popular open source tools um, in the React ecosystem. And maybe you could give us a quick introduction to some of them and what they do and how they help build great apps. Sure. I'll start by saying I really hope that like tan stack doesn't come across as really like ostentatious. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think so. And uh, there's lots of there's a fair amount of companies in dev tool space or tools named after founders like the HashiCorp is, I think that's named after the founder and New Relic is named after the founder. So I, I mostly just needed something that wasn't my name, but could be vaguely like branded, you know? <clears throat> so yeah, no, makes sense. seemed to work out. So um, I actually didn't make TanStack a thing until probably about a year, no, about two years ago. Uh, before that, I was just kind of building open source just under my own name. And most of my libraries are still under my own name, but uh, I'm trying to kind of slowly move things over to like the TanStack branding. But yeah, if you, if you go to TanStack.com, uh, you'll see you know quality software and libraries for the modern web. And I have kind of a list of open source libraries. So mainly React Query, React Table, uh, React Charts, and React Virtual are probably my four most well-known libraries that I currently uh, publicly want people to use. I have lots of others um, that I work on and that I use personally, but might not be ready for prime time yet, or at one point were and are not anymore. <laughs> so, And maybe we can start with um, React Query. So um, yeah, what, what does that one do? React Query is a data synchronization library for React. So, if you've ever used uh, if you've ever used a tool like Apollo for fetching GraphQL, uh, it brings a lot of those same niceties and features of having a coordinator for queries, but without the necessity of using GraphQL. So, really. Uh, it is an interface around promises. So anything that you can turn into a promise, you can use with React Query, um, including GraphQL for, for that matter. So React Query is just all about synchronizing data from your server or wherever you want really promises <laughs> to your client and making them more accessible in a, you know, in a React ecosystem. You've seen a lot of people who, they always start out building that little fetcher component, you know, use state, use effect. And we all know that use effect is like the biggest foot gun created in React, um, but it's also really powerful. So React Query is basically there to help you not write that code over and over again. It's got all the major use cases of caching and deduplication. Uh, and it really, in a, in a great way, it gets you away from where we've ended up as global state managers so there's you know lots of tools like Redux and Mobex and uh, even creating your own with React Context. 
if you're doing that to manage server state and server data, you're you're probably taking a step in the wrong direction now. Uh, that's where a tool like React Query would just kind of come in and own everything and make it bulletproof for you. So let's talk about it a bit more. Like, you know, let's say I have you know, I have a REST API, have a React app. You know, one way I could get data from the server is like write some code that fetches data, sticks it in Redux every time I need to um, you know, update, maybe pull the server for new data. I have to write some logic that yeah. grabs that new data, puts it in Redux, and then my, my app will update. How does React Query improve upon that experience for a lot of like the common patterns you see in a typical REST app-based application? Right. So <clears throat> you make a good point. Like We're already talking about global state, right? Redux. Um, everything you do with a global state manager like that is synchronous. So you are kind of converting these asynchronous events that you're getting back from the server into these synchronous events and trying to keep that state up to date. So the first thing React Query is going to do is get rid of the need to manage that on your own. There's no more you know, set loading, set data, set error. All of that is just handled for you. So it is a state machine under the hood, it is a state machine that's managing all of that for you. So that's kind of the first great thing that it's going to replace. So you're no longer managing your own state. Uh, the next thing it's going to do is it's going to cache that response. So all that data. Same way that Redux would make it available through your entire app, React Query also makes it available through your whole app. So anywhere that you call that query again in any component as many times as you want, it's all going to get deduplicated into one query. That's not necessarily something new, but it's expected functionality. I have to mention it. <laughs> um, and the next, the next great thing about it is, you know, usually people stop after they, you know, do the on mount event. Everybody does this with Redux or or even React Context. You you mount your component, you kick off the fetch, you get the data. And then after you get the data, from there on out, updating that data through your application is a very manual process that's very granular. Uh, you have to say, oh, hey, they, they remounted the component, or they left the page, they came back, we remounted again. You have to fire off an event that's going to refetch that data. And you have to make sure that that fetch happens in the background so that they're not seeing a loading state every single time. So while you can still be very granular with React Query when you want to update, most of that event lifecycle of keeping your, your data up to date is just built in. So there are a lot of uh, automatic dispatched events through React Query to keep that data up to date based on user interaction. So you can customize that user interaction and those events a lot, but out of the box, uh, it will automatically keep your data up to date as you refocus the window, as your network goes on and off, um, as new instances of the query appear on the screen and come off the screen. So there's not really the need to manually keep that data up to date anymore. It makes it feel like a subscription, almost like a WebSocket, but without WebSockets. And it's, it's not even using interval polling either. It's not on a timer. It's user input based uh, refetching. 
interesting. So it it sounds like it kind of is smart enough to know when a user interacts with a page, or you mentioned when the page is refocused after a period of being unfocused, those are the triggers to fetch new data versus just saying naively, like every 30 seconds, fetch the data. Right. And and you can still do that. If you want to put it on a timer, you can. There's refetch intervals built in. And uh, if you want to hook it up to WebSocket events, you can do that too. Uh, I do that at Nozzle. <laughs> um, and... But out, out of the box, it's designed to be very friendly, very, uh, it's also very aggressive with how often it keeps the data up to date, but you can kind of tune that up and down as you need it. Uh, something that's unique to React Query is a, the concept of stale time on your data or data staleness. And <clears throat> what that means is that out of the box, React Query is just kind of going to always be refetching data from the server a lot. It's going to err on the side of, let's keep this up to date all, as much as possible. Uh, versus sometimes you, you don't want to fetch the data that often, either because you have API restrictions or you just don't need to, or the data is not changing. So if that's the case, you can set uh, something up called stale time on your query instances. You can say, I'm okay if this data is stale for this amount of time before you refetch it. You can set it to 10 seconds or 30 seconds, or you can even go all the way up to infinity if you just don't want it to ever refetch again. A good example I give people is a Pokemon API is probably not changing that often. You know, they're kind of locked in for a long time. So you wouldn't want to be refetching that all the time. You could set it to infinity. But you know, a task list that you could be potentially sharing with other people probably don't want that to get stale very often. So I would just leave it at uh, zero. So that's that's kind of the concept of stale time. And um, like you said, it is, it is uh, intelligent enough to know what data is being used on the screen at any given moment. And another unique feature that it has is that... Um, you know, if, if you have five components that all subscribe to the same data, uh, you'll have five instances of this query, but still just sharing one entity. But if all five of those instances become unused, like if they unmount and drop off the screen and you're not using them anymore, uh, React Query will mark that data for an eventual garbage collection. And by default, it's about five minutes. So if you have an app that you're you're users are moving around a lot of screens and loading a lot of data into memory temporarily and then moving to other screens, eventually you would run out of memory if you were loading a lot of data into it. Uh, maybe every app doesn't run into this issue, but I do a lot of data visualization and querying from, you know, in our products and that data can be very heavy sometimes. So that five minute uh, cycle of, of recycling the memory and keeping things up to date, that's just built into React Query for everyone who uses it. So it's, it's pretty neat. And React Query, does it have an internal Redux-like store where data is cached? Like I think I've used Apollo before and I, I wanna say they can integrate with Redux um, and actually store data in the Redux store? Like, is there something similar with React Query or is it a different model? React Query has its own store model internally. Um, 
it's you can kind of see it a little bit uh, as you create the query client. So one of the first things you do when you use React Query, you create a query client and you you provide that to your application. That query client is where a lot of that state lives. And it's not just state for the queries, uh, it's also state for any potential mutations that are happening as well. So it's a very specially designed store that's optimized to work with you know, events around React Query's purpose. In terms of like debuggability, can you use like one of the, the various Redux logging tools or debuggers or something similar when you're trying to debug issues and see like what the state was at a given point in time? No, we did look into something like that uh, early on as a way of integrating. But at the end of the day, it you know the event system internally was was pretty custom. And if you're just logging out those events, it got really, really noisy. Uh, you can imagine with refetches happening automatically all the time, um, just a constant stream of those texts or JSON dumps of, of those events would kind of get heavy. Um, instead of going that direction, we, we kept it internal and, uh, and proprietary so that we could build dev tools around it. Uh, the dev tools for React Query are just built into the library. You just import them from you know, React Query slash dev tools. And the dev tools are just a React component right now. You, you render them on in your application, and they just kind of mount uh, at the top of your app. And the dev tools are really unique because instead of, um, instead of just kind of pounding you with all of these events, it takes everything and turns it into more of a GUI. So there's a lot of color encoding and status updates going through these dev tools that you can you can actually see, you know, through these uh, color indicators and status indicators on each of your queries, which ones are refetching when and how, you know, if they're stale or they're fresh or how many observers on the page, you know, how many components are observing that query. Um, and of course, the things you would expect from dev tools as well, like inspecting you know, the data payload and the query settings for that query and manually triggering things and removing things. So it's, uh, they're much more involved and um, like holistic than say an integration with, with something like, you know, Redux DevTools. Got it. Moving on, um, curious to learn a bit about some of the other tools in the TAN stack. Um, React Virtual is, is one I'm particularly curious about could you give us a quick overview of that? Yeah. Um, React Virtual is, first and foremost, it is a library for doing virtualization. If you don't know what virtualization is, uh, it is the concept of windowing lists or windowing uh, elements in your browser that might be very long. So if you have a list of 100,000 or even a million items, and you want to scroll through those items in your browser, you, you can't render all of those items all at once into the DOM or the DOM, the DOM will probably choke. So React Virtual makes it so that, you know, it only shows the items that are within the viewport or within the, the bounds that you have set. And as you scroll or move uh, through those bounds, the items move, you know, kind of move in and out of that list, making it look and appear as if it's a really, really long list, but really there's only a few items rendered at a time. 
So that's that's virtualization, and that's what it does. There's other libraries that have done this, you know, before and, and really well. Um, React, uh, let's see, React Window, and there's another one. Brian Vaughn has done a lot of work with with these virtualization libraries, and and they're great. One reason that I created React Virtual was that I needed a headless solution. And if again, if you don't know what headless is, it's kind of a, a modern, newish term in, in the ecosystem. But that means that it doesn't render any markup or styles for you. It's merely just the logic. Uh, if you were to go to react-virtual.tansac.com and go down to you know some of the examples, you'll see that uh, the way you use it is you just call use virtual. It's just a hook. And you provide it some basic information about the virtualizer you want to create. And then you then take that information and the event handlers and the props and styles, and you apply them on top of the markup and styles that you are using in your application. There are a lot of benefits to doing that. Um, we could talk about those if you want. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, it's an interesting topic. I A couple of years ago, when when we were first uh, building the MVP of LogRocket, in our UI, there's a component where it's it's basically our recreation of the Chrome DevTools log viewer. And so you can have tens of thousands of log messages that need to scroll. So it's a, it's a good um, use case for virtualization. And I, I used Brian Vaughn's React Virtualized for that component. And um definitely kind of pushed up against the limits of not necessarily of that component, but just kind of got into some different edge cases um, and shout out to Brian, who was super helpful um, on the GitHub issues, helping patch bugs and answer questions. But one of the things that I, that, you know, traditionally can be tricky with virtualization is like dynamically sized elements. Um, since the, you know, the, the goal of the virtualization component is to calculate, okay, what's in the current viewport. And if you have a bunch of elements that can change their heights, that can cause some, some trickiness. So I'm curious how, how you handle that. So React Virtual can do kind of all three styles of, um, of item measurement. So it does have a static style, obviously, where each item is the same height. There's a... Um, there's a variable style where each item can have a different height, but it's still hard coded, you know, set to never change and, and known ahead of time. And then there's a dynamic style, and the dynamic style is very unique. You know, this challenge is is difficult. And React Virtual is by no means perfect, but I think that its approach is is pretty cool. Uh, so out of the out of the gate, you need to at least give React Virtual some type of hint about how big you expect this, you know, these items to be. They don't. It, they can all be the same size, but just kind of roughly, you know, um, and just take an average of the size. Really, is just fine. I kind of always go with about forty pixels tall because that's about how most lists are. Uh, but from that point, every time every time you render an item, React Virtual has a backing kind of a, a backing mirrored store of each item and its size, right? And it's full of gaps. Uh, it's it's full of gaps and unknowns, and that's kind of where the size estimation comes in to give you some type of scrolling that you can use out of the gate, right? But the cool thing is that we use React's ref callback features. 
So if you've ever used a ref in React, you can pass it a you know use ref object, or you can pass it a function, and that function will give you the element, the underlying element, DOM element, and call that function for you uh, anytime that it mounts. And this is really helpful because we can we can basically just give you a ref measurer uh, utility, and you can take that and place it on each item that you're rendering. And React Virtual will know, oh, we just rendered item, you know, 150. And in, in a request animation frame, and honestly, I can't remember the implementation details, but we, <laughs> we measure that item and all the other items that are coming through. And as we can, we update that backing model with all of those heights. So you'll notice if you go to the dynamic, scroll, the dynamic scrollable version, um, the scroll bar will be kind of this big when you start. But depending on how those, how those uh, items actually get rendered out, which in the example, they're totally random. Like, it's just like, oh, it, it could be any size between, you know, these pixels. As you scroll down the page, you'll see that scroll bar kind of flex up and down, get bigger or smaller because of how, you know, the, the items that you have rendered are changing that backing store and changing the total height of, of the virtualizer. And because it's headless, we, you know, we don't have to manage all of those styles in React Virtual. We just tell you, here's the total height, how, how it's changing, and here's where you are in that, in that window. And, and it kind of just works. And so when you say measure, that's like you have an item, it could have any height, and you don't know the height until it's rendered in the DOM. And it, the browser, you know, especially like if you have fonts or you know, things like that, that you know, you have overflowing text or like yep. different things like that that make the height unknown until rendered on the yep. DOM. You use the use ref callback and then just measure how big is this actual element once right. the browser renders it. Yep, and we try and do that before paint too. So uh, you know, if you were to click the scroll bar immediately halfway down the screen, you know, those 10 items that kind of pop into view, they're all going to render with that estimation size first. So it might even render, you know, 20 items because it thinks they're all 20 pixels. But for each one of those individual line items, it's going to measure them really quick and figure out what their total height is and then readjust before the paint happens. And this is really getting into the edge cases, but one that I remember being pr pretty fun to deal with was if you have elements that can change height, like for example, in our log viewer, you could, similar to in Chrome, you can click on, a, if an object is logged, you could click on it and it will expand. Mm -hmm. um, how are those handled with React Virtual? So at, at the bare minimum, we provide you a, you, you know, some callbacks and functions that you can call to like, hey, I need, I want to manually invalidate uh, the these measurements of, of what's there, and they will get remeasured um, immediately. And you know that that invalidation function of hey, remeasure everything is pretty darn performant. Uh, I've seen people who my suggestion would be not to do animated expands in virtualizers. Uh, because you can just expand it and then call that function and it's very synchronous. There are people who want that animation expansion. And so right. I, I kind of just say, well, then you need to hook into that animation loop of whatever is doing the animating for that and call the invalidator 
you know, throughout that animation and that it works really well. So it just kind of depends on how, how complex you want to make your virtualizer, you know, what your, what your use cases are. Um, yeah. I can't think of a good use case of why you would need a virtualizer to be animated height, like the, the items, but someone's going to come up with it and they're going to say it's important enough to us that it needs to work. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that is always true when you're building something and, um, it's, you know, I guess it's, it's a good, a good sign when, when people in the community come up with use cases you didn't think of and push the boundaries of, of what you're building. Um, I'm curious when you think about these different tools that make up the tan stack, like are there any kind of themes that unite these or better together kind of um, aspects of the different tools you're building or how do you decide what to build and, and add to, to this stack of tools? Yeah. The, we could talk about a kind of inception first, I guess is um, I usually don't build a tool without doing a lot of other things first. Uh, one of the main reasons that I would build a tool is because I need it, first of all, and need that that need comes from the other non-open source like projects and companies that I work on, and mainly Nozzle. Nozzle is uh, my startup. I started it with two other, two other guys, and we've been going for eight years. And we've been solving some very, very difficult problems with uh, you know, big data and reverse engineering Google search results, essentially, and providing that data back to, you know, whoever wants it. And with that, you know, comes just a lot of challenges for a modern, a modern web app, you know, and these are challenges that may not be super hot right now. Everybody seems to be talking about, you know, SSR and hydration and the things that might affect a majority of the web um, in terms of performance. But everything at Nozzle is, is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Everything's behind an authentication gateway. Uh, you know, we're not going for first page load speed. A lot, you know, it is very much an application uh, that lives on the web. And with that, you know, we've had to tackle different problems. One of the very earliest ones was tables. Like I just could not find a good table component for the life of me. And I found some, but they were just rigid. They didn't let me do things not just the way that I wanted, but they didn't let, they didn't give me proper inversion of control, you know? And so I set out to build React Table. That was one of the very first libraries that I built. And I built it for Nozzle because uh, I needed it. And I built it until it matched my use cases in Nozzle. And then I released it and stopped, you know? And other people took it off from there and I kept improving it. And the same thing happened, you know, with React Form and, and even React Query. I needed those because I was kind of hitting, bumping it into the ceiling on some of these concepts in Nozzle. I, I wasn't getting, you know, enough data updates in Nozzle. Uh, people were shared, we have shared workspaces and shared teams and, you know, people are saving things all the time and objects are changing. And I'm like, Redux is not cutting it. And so... I found myself writing all these events, you know, to keep things up to date. Pretty soon I had this custom thing and I was like, this is a big problem. I'm going to release this as a library. And that's where React Query came from. And the same thing with React Virtual. I, I needed to virtualize some things that, you know, I, I needed to own the divs and the styles. And I needed to know about the implementation of 
said virtualizer and, and bless Brian's soul. I love his work, but it just, that's not how his components were built. And I, I'm sure he wasn't ready to, you know, just completely revamp all of his virtualizers for this one use case. So I like to vet libraries in the ecosystem really hard. I, I would rather not have to build something to proceed with my blockers at Nozzle. Uh, it just saves me time. But if there is a situation where there's a gap and it's going to help everyone if I just build something, that's kind of why I, I build the tools that I do. And what has your experience been like open sourcing these tools? Um, you know, some like React Query, I mean, all of the tools definitely getting some strong traction in the community. Um, have you found it kind of, has the decision to open source generally been one that is kind of worth it from a amount of time you have to invest versus the returns you get from having the community members being involved, fi- fixing bugs, finding edge cases, um, or have there been any cases where you're maybe feel like you shouldn't have open sourced it just because you haven't had the time to invest as much as you should? Most of the time, it's been worth it. We, we're we a very small team. I mean, up until just a, a year or two ago, I was the only front-end developer at Nozzle. You know, I, I was the intern and the VP, kind of playing all the all the pieces and, and doing all the roles. And it was hard because I, I, don't, I didn't have a team. I didn't have people to help me or bounce ideas off of. So open source was kind of like my adopted team, so to speak. You know, I, I adopted the internet as my team. And, and if I could convince people to use these tools and help me make them better, I would essentially be outsourcing uh, and exchanging, you know, that for some work. And it proved to be very helpful. Like React Table got a lot of support. React Query has a ton of support now. And, you know, at the end of the day, Nozzle is is my biggest concern right now, and it's it's doing great. I'm very confident about all of the querying in Nozzle because of all the great help that I've received. So it's definitely been worth it. Um, it doesn't mean that it's always been worth it for every project. There have been some open source libraries that I've built that just kind of, they either don't catch on because they're not necessary or because competition is fierce, you know, and I'm a one-man show with a full-time gig going on. Uh, One of those examples was React Static. I built React Static because this was back when Gatsby was getting started and Next.js was getting started, right? And I kind of threw my hat into the ring with React Static as this static site generator um, that could do route-based data fetching. Uh, It was really... Is kind of ahead of its time a little bit, to be honest, because everybody loves route-based data fetching now. I just didn't have the dynamic part, you know, that Next.js has. And um, it was really cool. But at the end of the day, it was merely just to build Nozzle's marketing site because I didn't like the tools that were there. And that's not a really big use case for Nozzle. We didn't really want to maintain it. I didn't want to maintain it. And honestly, when you, when you pitched it up against Next and Gatsby, who, you know, Next has this awesome company, Vercel, behind it, right? Who, they have a lot of cash, a lot of people that they can throw into Next, and they're doing that, and you can see how it's paying off, right? I, I knew that that was going to be the case. I did not want to try and compete with that. And, and then Gatsby, like, kind of in a similar vein, like, they raised a ton of money, and, and they still have raised a lot of money, and they're throwing a lot of that into 
the Gatsby open source project. And I'm like, I can't compete, you know, this, I'm a one man show and I can't compete against, you know, these 20 or 30 developer teams who are all contributing to these projects. So situations like that, where it just kind of makes sense to just kind of let it die. And I, I didn't let React Static die. I handed it off to somebody who, who was going to appreciate it and take care of it more than me. Um, and another great example is React Form. Like React Form was, it was early in its time and some people still use it. I use it at Nozzle, but I, I can recognize that like there are libraries like Formic and React Hook Form uh, and React Final Form. Those are all really, really great form libraries that they have a lot of features and a lot of great things about them that I don't have in mind. And so I, I just kind of quietly decided to retire, you know, that library, at least from pitching it to people and, and trying to get people to use it because uh, it's, you know, I'm not doing open source to, you know, for, for the attention. I'm not doing it for, you know, to stroke the open source ego, as, as some people say. I, it really is just a means to an end for me to, you know, solve these bigger problems. Um, and hopefully problems that other people are experiencing as well. You mentioned before, you know, you're building this company Nozzle, you've been working, you know, working on it for the past number of years. And you said that you pull data from Google and do a lot of interesting big data stuff. Um, just curious to learn a bit about Nozzle. Um, I'm not super familiar with the product, so sure. maybe you could give a plug for, for what you're building. Yeah. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, like you can go to nozzle.io, that's our website. But essentially, we are we are reverse engineering Google search rankings at scale. Um, what the people in the SEO community call that is uh, SERP or rank tracking. And so we are very much an enterprise scale SERP or rank tracker. Uh, what that means is that you you come to Nozzle and you enter in keywords and phrases. Uh, things that you would that people would search in Google that you know are similar, like in the vein of your business and your marketing department, right? We have people with a hundred keywords that they want to track, and we have people with tens of thousands of keywords that matter to them. And those keywords can be uh, modified with languages and devices, whether you're on a phone or a tablet. And they can be based on like geolocation or zip codes. Like there's a lot of permutations to these searches that people are doing all over the world. And we, we've built a manager around all of that keyword tracking and scheduling and, and very advanced scheduling that you probably won't see um, in the SEO rank tracking community. We're kind of bleeding edge in that way. And uh, from there, there's like the whole admin side that we're just, we have a whole backend team. Like we are all Kubernetes go, very uh, microservice driven, just constantly crawling and, and uh, you know, categorizing. And we maintain so much data. I think we create, you know, a couple terabytes of data every week uh, that we're throwing into technologies like BigQuery um, and Vitesse for MySQL. So, there is a definitely a big data problem that we we have on the back end, and our engineers are doing a great job of solving that. And then on the front side, on the front end of it, you know, there's like, okay, how do we take all of this data and all of this complex keyword management and and possible you know reporting 
tool, like reporting scenarios and make them all accessible. And, and you know what? That kind of reminds me, I didn't even talk about React charts. That's another one that I built mm. because I needed it in Nozzle. So, Yeah, well, I'm happy to hear about it. Is that, um, yeah, maybe you could tell us what, uh, re- what React charts does or kind of how it improves upon some of the existing chart libraries. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how I can frame it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I... I guess I'll start by saying like I, I, I started with D3 and tools like D3 and C3 and I learned a lot of those and I even contributed to tools like CrossFilter that, you know, are, were built to integrate with kind of D3 visualizations. And then from there, this is probably about five or six years ago, I worked on Chart.js. Uh, mm-hmm. I worked with Everett Timberg, actually, the two of us, we rewrote Chart.js to version two. So... I, I'm not super affiliated with it publicly anymore, but you can still go to the contributors there and see some awesome contributions from me to Chart.js. Like I loved Chart.js <laughs> for a long time. Got very a little too familiar with the Canvas API. I I don't really enjoy working with Canvas <laughs> API anymore. Um, and when I got into React, I kind of moved back to SVG. Uh, you know because they're they're so uh, like they work together so well. And I was like, oh, there's got to be some great tools out there. I looked into tools like Nevo and Visex and um, their React, uh, React DataViz, another one. I can't remember what it's called. But I tried a lot of these tools, and, and they're all great. Uh, they, they either tend to be more on the, on the spectrum on one side of like, hey, we're going to give you a lot of low-level tools, and you still have, kind of have to build your own data visualizations, um, or... They are like very drop-in, you know, kitchen sink. Here's here's you know a charting library. They just say render this chart, uh, and I, I liked both of those for different reasons. I I am definitely partial to libraries for charting that kind of take care of everything for you because I know I'm all about headless and the implementation details and like making it uh, like making it so that you can control everything, but I don't think that that's the right approach for chart building. <laughs> uh, it is for data visualization yeah. that's custom, right? It's custom, go with VizX, do your D3 thing. But for 99% of us who we just have data and we need to get it to the user and show them, you don't want to have to think about data visualization. It is complex. Uh, it's not top down like you think it is. There's graph dependencies under the hood, and there's so much that goes into building great charts that it's not something I would even want to be headless and wire up on my own. Uh, so that's why I built React Charts. It's just a component chart. And you say, here's a chart. And I, I narrowed in the scope really small to make sure that it was doing the best that it could at one thing. So it only does XY uh, charts. There's no pies, no radial charts or anything like that. Uh, and I have my own opinions about pie charts, but they're not, I don't think they're that useful or great. So don't use them. <laughs> but like it only does XY charts. Uh, but by kind of locking in to say, okay, this is the way that we're going to do it. And we only do XY charts and we're very friendly with React. Now you can just kind of dump a chart in there with some data and you get all these great features out of the box. You get, you know, automatic access generation and, and, uh, tooltip generation. There's cursors that show up on the on the axes, and there's uh, uh, what else is there? 
you know, it's, it's totally responsive. So it's hyper responsive, if that's even a term anymore, but locally responsive to the component. So you just drop it in and it will fill the space that you give it uh, by default. I get so angry with charting libraries that are like, oh, here, here's a way to make it responsive. You know, that's, it's, no, it should just be responsive out of the box. And uh, things like automatic margin calculation for your axis labels and automatic tick rotation. This is little niceties that take so much work and effort, even if you're doing your own D3 visualization. Like they, they're so hard to do, and I've been working on them for probably like three years. And I finally feel like it's in a place where I can let people use it. So that's why I built React Charts, and now it powers all of the charts on Nozzle's dashboards. We have, if, in fact, if you go to the examples on React Charts, you'll find one that's a stress test. It's like at the very bottom. Um, that stress test example is there to essentially proof of concept if it will work in Nozzle. Like we have, you know, so many charts on the page at any given moment, and they're they're not just like static. They're moving around with resizing and they have like linked cursors so that you can kind of keep your place across charts. Some of them are, some of them are tiny little spark charts and some of them are huge. So uh, it's definitely built for a specific use case, but it's really good at what it does. It's currently in beta right now uh, because simply because I haven't written the full documentation for it, but I'm using it in production, <laughs> lock it into the specific beta version and, and you'll be okay. But it, it seriously is, is, a, is a fun tool. So tell me, what are you most excited about in the future in terms of, um, you know, improvements to the Tanstack tools that are on your, on your roadmap? Um, you know, React Query is pretty stable. People, and we're getting some few contributions here and there and, um, which reminds me, I, I should give a shout out to, you know, my other maintainer, uh, TK Dodo, Dominic Dorfmeister. He's a great maintainer, um, definitely, you know, in it for the long haul. And he's a great teammate. And if, if anybody appreciates his work, they need to go sponsor him on GitHub. I, I do. And uh, man, what a, what a fantastic developer. He has a great blog, too, that we recently just integrated into the docs talking all about best practices for like React Query. So go check that out, tkdodo.eu, I think is his, his blog. Um, as far as improvements to other tools, you know, I don't have any big major features planned for any of the other tools that are currently out, uh, but I do have a new tool that I'm working on that it's, it's not a secret, but I'm definitely not like marketing it a lot uh, but it is in the it is in the routing space for React. Um, I know that is like a crazy kind of weird space to get into because of like there's tools like React Router that just kind of yeah they just own everything you know. And React Router is wonderful. I use React Router in a lot of places. Um, but I'm I'm working with some new concepts around uh, enterprise routing, uh, mainly around building these real like nozzle a very complex application that has a lot of state and a lot of schema and rules and types that are kind of built into the routing of, of your application. There's, there's a lot to be, React Router does a lot for you that is just wonderful uh, if you're just looking for a client-side router. And 
Um, I know they're working on Remix, and, and that's kind of the backbone of Remix, which is which is really cool. Uh, but going into the you know purely client side realm, where you know there's just a lot of state encoded into the URL, um, there's definitely some areas that that are left to be desired. And I have some proof of like some proofs of concept out. Uh, I have a React location lib- uh, library that I'm working on right now. It's definitely not something I would suggest you use unless you want to just kind of try it out for fun. Um, but that's going to be kind of a new home for some of these new concepts that uh, I believe maybe are not as prevalent or widespread as the, ne- the you know the necessity of React router. Uh, I will keep using React Router for specific projects, you know, that that need it. But for the very, very small amount of big applications out there um, that are doing like a lot of enterprise level routing, uh, I would like to build a tool that's going to make some of those things easier. So that's kind of on the horizon. Um, I'm currently using a very, very internal alpha build of that React location library at Nozzle. And it's turning out really, really well. So stay tuned for that one. Great. Well, Tanner, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been awesome to learn about Nozzle um, and, you know, of course, all the open source tools you're building. We will put some links in the episode description um, to your different tools, to Nozzle. Um, But otherwise, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for listening to PodRocket. Find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's brian at LogRocket.